Hey there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student, another podcast. We're going to get started here and we're going to try and talk about some really interesting things like uh, studies named bypassing the blues, sad heart, cardiacs, or Kodiaks, copes, and succeed. I think the uh, names of the trials should give you a clue that we're going to talk about cardiovascular outcome studies. And of course, the uh, uh, cardiothoracic surgeons seem to do the best at naming their trials as opposed to anybody else. They just have the best names. So let's uh, let's start with introductions. I'm going to have you all scoot in just a little bit, though, because we are too far apart to have a good mic sound. And uh, we'll start over here. This is Garrett, fourth-year medical student. This is Becca. I'm a third-year medical student. Um, I'm Chris. I'm also third-year. Jake, fourth-year medical student. And uh, the star of the show today, Cody, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about, uh, first of all, where you're headed after medical school, at least tentatively, and a little bit about how this topic came up? Yeah, so I'm Cody, Cody Rasmussen, and I'm a third-year med student as well. And I'm hoping to go into surgery, specifically cardiothoracic surgery is my passion. Um, so we'll see what ends up with that. So that's actually what kind of brought on this uh, topic today, uh, which is post-operative depression, specifically in cardiovascular surgery. So, Oh, go ahead, Cody. Yeah, so I just want to say that I reached out to a preceptor I had, a cardiothoracic surgeon, and asked him, like, what should I really know? Psychiatric related. Uh-huh. And what did he say or she and, say? Yeah. And he just said, just know about post-op depression, really get to know that, understand that. So. And uh, how did this uh, deep dive uh, start to prepare you for that? Any ideas? Um, yeah, it's a really prevalent thing. Uh, basically, it needs to be addressed and don't just sweep it under the floor. It's just as important as a lot of the a lot of the other issues that you'll face with, with patients. It makes a lot of sense to me. There's a lot of attention to this. In fact, you sent me a list of um, the ACC, which is what the Association of... The American College of Cardiologists. American Car College of Cardiologists. This is uh, a significant part of their treatment recommendations uh, for cardiovascular surgery. Is that correct? Or for at least uh, cabbage. Yep. Yeah. So cabbage, the coronary artery bypass graft surgery is a very, very common surgery. And so they have a lot more data on this because it's such a common thing. And so this is specifically from one of the recommendations with the cabbage. Now, Cody, I, I never got to see uh, cardiovascular surgery when I was in medical school or in residency. So I had to, I had to read a little bit about this. I want, I want to just go through what I think I understand. And would you stop me if I make a mistake? I'll try. <laughs> I hope so. So um, it turns out that the first bypass surgery was done in the early 20th century by a guy named Alexis Carroll, and it was done on dogs. And then it was kind of forgotten about until the 1960s when a guy named uh, Konstantinov finally did this on humans and had a successful surgery. It got popularized shortly after that, and it became the treatment of choice for cardiovascular disease. Now, cardiovascular disease is not a small issue. It's the leading cause of death in the United States, or at least it was until maybe last week when the coronavirus passed it uh, briefly, whether, I mean, I don't think that will last, but at least for a short period of time. Um, but otherwise, this is the, the main thing that kills people. 
Um, there have been some alternative treatments. So there are medical therapies that you can use, uh, percutaneous coronary angioplasty as a possibility. But it looks like five-year, seven-year, 10-year mortality, um, there is a favorable outcome for uh, bypass grafts versus these other options. And even, even though there's still some uh, problems with this surgery where, first of all, you bypass or you graft the, or, or you harvest, I should say, vessels from arm or leg, then you um, have two choices. You can either put somebody on a pump where the pump does the pumping during the surgery, or you can leave the heart beating and um, work under the confines of a small area that is not beating maybe, Cody, and I'm not sure I understand that completely. So on pump and off pump surgery. Now on pump seems to have some problems with inflammation. We see TNF alpha escalation. We see IL-6 and 8 increase. And this seems to have some problems with the kidneys or maybe some uh, cardio cardiac abnormalities. And despite that, and even though off pump surgery seems to have a little bit better post-op mortality outcomes, in the long run, these two surgeries are fairly equivalent. Um, but still, I think most of the data that we're going to be talking about, just to make sure we, we're very clear, most of the data we're going to be talking about is based on uh, bypass surgeries that are done with the pump. Does that sound right, Cody? That sounds right. And I've only had a little taste of all of this and all I've ever come across and all I've experienced was bypass, like on a cardiopulmonary bypass machine. So. On, with the pump. And, yep. and I think PTCA, uh, the percutaneous coronary angioplasty, at one point was thought to be maybe a better solution, but it looks like revascularization is necessary quite often, maybe five years out. Uh, does that sound about right? Uh, I'm not sure exactly, but I would have to say that um, Dr. Doty, he would not let me not live it down if I didn't mention that the actual grafting is a much, much better than the percutaneous, especially when there's the, the main LAD or the main arteries of the, of the heart are involved. It's definitely a better way to go with the cabbage. In, in fact, it looks like when you start talking about severe cardiovascular disease, um, bypass grafting becomes uh, a much clearer choice. Does that sound right? Yeah, and there'd be a lot of argument back and forth with that, though, too. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it seems like that's what we found in the data, the articles that you shared, the things that I looked up independently. It seems to be the preferred treatment. So, so it's, we, we kind of laid the groundwork here for um, at least what the surgery is that we're talking about. After the surgery, there's a cardiac rehab. And this cardiac rehab, we'll use this term, it looks like it consists of things like smoking cessation, cardiovascular exercise, psychosocial management, antiplatelet medications, antilipid medications, beta blockade, ACE inhibitors, uh, control of diabetes and blood pressure, and what we're gonna talk about, treatment of depression. Now let's, let's talk about depression first of all. So, uh, Let's start with the diagnosis of depression. We do that every time we talk about a topic, we try to make sure that we've addressed the primary criteria of the condition. And who's got that today? I have it. All right, Rebecca, jump on in. So there's a mnemonic that we will always go through to see SIGI caps. So the S stands for sleep changes, I is for loss of interest, G is for guilt, E is low energy, C is for concentration, A is for appetite changes, and that can be going up or down, um, P is for psychomotor slowing, and S is suicidal ideation. Good, and you have to have how many of the criteria? So you need five. 
five of nine, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And the one criteria that we don't have in SIGI CAPS is I am depressed, right? That subjective feeling of being depressed. So remember that as well. Very, very good. Were you going to add anything else about diagnosis of depression on, uh, with SIGI CAPS? Uh, I don't know if I, we're talking about this now, but one thing that I also looked into was the overlap between um, depression and maybe just an, a medical disease that might present similarly. Great. Tell, um, tell us a little bit about what you found. So I looked into specifically coronary artery disease and typical symptoms that I found are obviously the retrosternal chest pain, you have dyspnea, dizziness, anxiety, nausea, and um, also there can be a possibility of MI if you have complete ischemia. And so looking through these, I can see that a patient might have sleep changes because they're obviously having some chest pain. They might not be sleeping as well. They could appear like they have some loss of interest because maybe they're not physically able to do the things that they used to enjoy doing. Um, they could have low energy because of the dyspnea. They can have difficulty concentrating maybe because of the pain. Um, they could or, also- Or even oxygenation, I think, to some extent, right. yeah. Um, they could also have maybe some motor slowing just due to the physical limitation. I think looking through those, you can hit five criteria very easily, but I looked in the DSM-5 and one, one of the things that I just wanted to point out was that there's a specific um, exclusion criteria listed at the bottom saying that um, the episode cannot be attribu attributable to any physiological effects of a substance or to another medical condition. So in this case, I think if it's very obviously due to post-surgical physical limitations, then that wouldn't be considered or you wouldn't count it into um, the city caps criteria. Excellent. There are a few other medical conditions that sometimes show up on uh, the shelf exam that you need to be aware wouldn't necessarily be called depression right off the bat. Uh, the most common one of those is what? I think hypothyroidism. You nailed it. Very, very good. So this brings up the question, how, how do we know who has depression and who has just heart disease? One of the things that I thought was very interesting in some of the studies that Cody sent me was that almost immediately after surgery, depending on which tool you use to assess depression, depression dropped by like 15%, depression uh, meeting the criteria for depression based on the, the different tests. So let's take just a second and talk about some of the different ways that you might measure depression in medically ill populations. I think each of you took one different test and then we've got uh, one ring to rule them all, so to speak that I think Chris will talk about. So Garrett, you looked up which test? Uh, the Beck Depression Inventory Testing. So this is one that's been around since 1961 with some changes and variations throughout the years, but it's currently a 21 item survey where a patient can scale their feelings towards each item from zero to three. So it works on a cutoff point system where they score so high or so low from none to mild to moderate to severe depression. Currently, it can be used for both just kind of getting a good idea of intensity. It can be used for screening, and it has been found a place among primary care providers as an ongoing test to document changes in depression. Excellent. When I started in psychiatry, this was the gold standard. From my perspective, this was the gold standard for any trials of antidepressants to come to market. They had to be able to show uh, significant changes in the, the BD, 
uh, the back depression inventory to be able to uh, you know, go to the FDA. All right, Rebecca, which, which uh, test did you look at? So as tasks, we're looking at CESD, which stands for Center for Epidemiological Studies, and then the D stands for depression. Um, so it's also kind of a, um, a questionnaire type of thing. That's, it has 20 items that they measure and you rank it or you rate it from zero to three and then there's also a cutoff score. And what I found was that um, the nice thing is it takes about five minutes to complete, which is which makes it a pretty good screening test. And it has good sensitivity and specificity in medically ill populations. Um, but the problem is that there is a low positive predictive value, which limits its use as a screening instrument for depression. All right, and very well done. Chris, you have two different tests. Uh, Let's talk about the one we initially assigned. Yeah, so I looked at the um, PHQ, also known as Patient Health Questionnaire for Depression. Um, that test, an article that I looked at, showed that it has an 88% um, percent um, uh, sensitivity as well as 88% um, specificity for um, diagnosing depression. And then I also looked up the um, a test called the DMI. There's the DMI. I'm going to hold off on the DMI for just a second. Was there anything that you read about the PHQ that spoke to its ability to uh, look at medically ill populations? Um, no, that was that was just oh, the 88% were just overall. Overall. And, and I think we've mentioned this in previous podcasts that the PHQ seems to dominate the landscape. Most of my students that come to me and have been on primary care rotations have used a PHQ in the rotations. And I see you all nodding mm -hmm. your head. Uh, so, so it sounds like that still is the case. I think the, the PHQ has some really nice um, uh, characteristics to it in that it is patient self-report and it does seem to be both an initial screen that's fairly sensitive and a tool that can be used to uh, monitor continued um, recovery. Who's got a phone piece buzz in his head? Oh, that, I'm so sorry. That's all right. We're all looking at it. We're worried that maybe, you know, something needs to be addressed there. Um, so uh, PHQ seems to be the standard of care. I'm less familiar with PHQ data validating use in medically ill populations. I think the CESD has a longer history of that. And I think maybe the difference between the PHQ and the BDI is that um, I can't remember if the BDI, the Beck Depression Inventory or not, is self-report or if that's you listen to a patient and then fill it out. I believe it's self-report because one of the actually downsides of it is it can change based on how the physician gives them their instructions. Interesting. Very good. All right. So we'll come back to the other test that you looked up. And Jake, you had a test that you looked up. Yeah, so I was looking up the HADS, or also known as the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale. Now, this scale has been around since the 80s. It's a 14 questionnaire, um, and it has several different uh, types to it. There's the HADS A, which is primarily assessing anxiety, and the HADS D for depression. Um, but the uniqueness about this scale is it also has questions um, that separate and help you distinguish between symptoms of GAD and depression from uh, anxiety and depression associated with other medical conditions. Now, there was a study done on it. They evaluated 747 papers that used this scale, and they found the sensitivity and the specificity were both around 80% comparable to the GHQ. It just has kind of a different, unique look at it to, to tell if it's between medical or psychiatric. 
So as I recall, anytime you get a sensitivity and a specificity that's under 90, that test isn't terribly helpful. Does that sound about right to you guys? Mm -hmm. So there are clearly some problems with the test that we have. And it's also a very difficult topic separating out depression from people who appear to be, be depressed, but maybe it's the suppression of their normal physiological function. Now, Chris, you came across an article and a test that I um, don't know that I've ever heard of before called the... Yeah, so um, another test is called the DMI, DMI 10 or 18, depending on how many questions are in the questionnaire. It stands for um, depression for um, patients with medically, sorry, medically ill patients, um, DMI. Um, and I found a study, it's not the most recent or best study. It came out in 2010. It's, it compares the DMI to three other, um, three others of the uh, screening tools that we've talked about. Um, and it was, it came out in 2010 and it was done on a Spanish population. So it may not be the, the best for every um, situation, um, but it showed that the, all of the tests were like fairly comparable, um, but the, the DMI was the most sensitive out of all four of those tests compared. So, so, so all of these tests other than the DMI were used in a lot of the different patient populations that um, Cody, you, you put together a list of articles and at least one meta-analysis that looked at prevalence of depression before surgery and after surgery. And these are the kinds of tests that were used to assess for depression. Cody, tell us a little bit about the prevalence of depression before uh, uh, bypass surgery and then after surgery. Do you have a take on that? Yeah, I got a, a couple things right here. Um, one was from that meta-analysis that you referred to was from uh, 2020. And that was done by some uh, doctors from Spain, actually. And, and Dr. Correa, Rod Correa yeah. Rodriguez was the lead author on that. Is that yep. right? Yeah, yes, okay, that good. Yes, correct. Um, yeah, and so they actually came up with the, the idea that there was more depression before surgery compared to after, and they had a range of 19 to 37% in those cabbage surgery patients before surgery. And then for after the surgery, they had the range of 15 to 33%, which... So, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, which was interesting, just the fact that they were saying that there was actually more depression before. But this was considering all sorts of depression, like not necessarily, it basically could consider anyone that had depression before, not just from having coronary artery disease or anything like that. One of the things that they mentioned that makes this kind of a study more difficult was they said, hey, um, depression seems to suppress our independent level of function. We're, we're less active, we're doing fewer things. And there's a little bit of a chicken egg in depression and cardiovascular disease. Our patients with depression seem to be at higher risk for infection, higher risk for arrhythmia, higher risk for uh, volume overload after surgery. But they also seem to be the same patients that are not as active before surgery and are at higher risk for developing um, these kinds of, of uh, cardiovascular conditions. The other thing that I thought was quite interesting about the way they went about this was that they said, hey, there's a lot of difference between the tests used and the percentages of depression and anxiety. Did you notice any trends with that? I didn't notice any specific trends. I just knew that there was that high range and they were just, they really pointed out that there needs to be something to 
to better standardize how they look at these different patients to be able to even get some good information from it. Yeah, I noticed that, for example, they, they broke down the differences in pre and post depression to um, like the HADS had no change in pre and post surgery depression. The BID or BDI was also essentially the same, but the HADS showed a rate around 20% and the BDI ranged closer to 35%. PHQ was a little closer to the HADS and, and the CESD was the one that changed the most with surgery. It went from about 30% prevalence to 15% prevalence. And I think that speaks to your point that the tools we have to identify depression are, are limited. And that probably interferes with our ability to correctly identify and treat patients who have depression. I don't know how that changes thing, I, things. I think you still probably, if somebody comes into the clinic and they look like they're depressed, you probably treat the depression the way you see it. Did you find anything that gave you guidance along those lines, Cody? I, I didn't. Um, honestly, that was kind of the big issue is that there isn't guidance of what the timing should be really, like when you should be screening. They, everyone agreed it's probably good to screen soon after the surgery and within that month, within those two weeks after. But after that month or so after the surgery, it's kind of all over the place. I was under the impression that the one point that they thought was most helpful was that if somebody has uh, pre-morbid or pre-surgical depression, that, that predicts the likelihood of a post-surgical depression, that those might be the, the patients that you, you know, assume are higher risk from the get-go. Yeah. And there was one more thing too, is that they just pointed out that really you need to have that risk stratification. You need to find those at-risk patients, like you said, from pre-op. So you don't want to find out that they had all this depression afterwards. That is not helpful. And it sounds like that's something that your preceptor was focusing on is be aware of the depression associated with, with this disease. Can I ask a question just kind of about, I might, maybe I should already know this, but is the cabbage surgery done um, post MI or is it done electively in order to prevent MI? Or are these patients kind of just all over the place as far as when they develop depression compared to when they have had an MI? Cody, you got an answer for that? I think I do, but I don't know if I'm right. So just to that last little bit, there's not really the connection between when the depression is with all of that, but earlier to when they do cabbage. Um, usually this is someone comes in, they've had angina, they've got that chest pain from exertion. They find out later after doing a, uh, some testing using a cath, just they cath the heart and they find out that they've got blockage in the vessels. And so then that just shows that they need to go and fix it. Um, cabbage has kind of been taken over by the putting in the stents. That's the percutaneous stuff for those that do have MIs. So that's the more hurry up, get in there, put a stent in because the person's having a heart attack. So, so most of these kind of patients a, that we're talking about then in these studies have not have um, MIs recently. They just had elective cabbages. Um, that's how I understand it, because most okay. patients go through either their family doctor refers them to their cardiologist or they see a cardiologist and that's who refers them on to the, the heart surgeon, the cardiothoracic surgeon, and then they get them okay. on to do the cabbage. And, and I'm not sure that's an absolute perfect distinction, because I think there are times when what I read was that um, there might be a difference in off-pump and on-pump in the setting of uh, acute MI. And so there, there may be times, I think the, 
decision to um, either have on-pump, off-pump uh, bypass surgery or percutaneous surgery. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why our cardiologists are paid the big bucks, right? Because I think this decision-making becomes fairly involved about a number of risk factors. And, and Cody, I would again defer to you having been with a cardiologist most recent, or a cardiothoracic surgeon most recently. Any, any additional information about what I just said? Um, no, just that it really is, there's not one way to do it. So you're right. Yeah, there seems, there seems to be, in fact, it looked like one of the things that one of the articles I read suggested was if you're really good at on-pump surgery, do it. If you're really good at off-pump surgery, do that instead. And one of, either of those are probably better than percutaneous over the long run. Yeah, for keeping long term. For, for revascularization. At the end of the day, what, what I understood was that when we do these surgeries, what we want is for the heart to be revascularized. And even things like depression might affect the rate of revascularization. And at least I think that's what I read. I, I did read something with specifically the using the saphenous vein as a graft that had more, um, it was more associated with being clogged up again. So versus the, the left internal mammary artery that they find to be more uh, just better. Interesting. So, th so there seems to be a, a lot of work being done right now on how do you have effective revascularization. And, and I think that's one of the interesting topics that makes me think that cardiology would have been a pretty cool career too, or cardiovascular surgery. Um, one of the other things that I was surprised by on, on this paper, this uh, meta-analysis done out of Spain, they cited two studies that had six-year follow-up data. They started, cited one by um, McCann and one by Selness. Uh, the McCann group used the CESD and they found that over six years, there was a reduction of depression from about 32% to about 17%, I think, if I'm reading my writing correctly, or 12%, in any case, a pretty large uh, reduction. And then the Selness article um, used the GDS, and I'm not familiar with what the GDS was, and they saw a reduction of depression from 33% to 13% over six years. And I thought that was very interesting because that, that seemed to say to me that there's something about losing function, about having poor oxygenation of your heart, about maybe not being able to perfuse your brain as well as you would like. All of those kinds of things um, seem to add up to tell me that, hey, if you can fix these physical ailments on some level and get good re revascularization, you're going to see a very substantial drop in depression. Did you see similar kinds of things in what you were reading in that article, Cody? Yeah, that was actually the big, the main takeaway that I got from that meta-analysis was they had to give a reason, like, why do we have less depression? And they said it, it's probably due to just improvements in patients' quality of life. Like, that's why they had this cabbage done in the first place. So, Good. Now, how do you treat somebody? So we mentioned at the beginning that our cardiothoracic surgeons provide this surgery that looks like it's quite life-changing. It has uh, mortality benefits over time compared to both PT, uh, PTC, PCTA and uh, medical therapies. Um, and yet this is still, these are still a group of patients that benefit from fairly close care. You sent an article to me about collaborative care by uh, Dr. Huffman. Tell me a little bit about collaborative care. What, what does that look like? Yeah, so basically, um, the definition that I had for that was that it's a systemic approach to treating depression and, and anxiety. 
and that study of uh, the bypassing the blues um, actually utilized this collaborative approach where they had a, a care manager. Uh, so a nurse that was the one that initially even got the, the patients involved in the study and they followed up with them over the eight months after the, the, their surgery. And basically they were kind of a bridge between the patient and the, the primary care physician or the PCP. And they actually had some set guidelines to uh, give recommendations and to help them work through a workbook that was uh, basically to help them take care of possible depression. Mm -hmm. And so basically care managers are kind of an in-between to help with the PCP and if needed to step up to a psychiatrist if needed. I was surprised. Um, I think the thing that stood out to me was, and this was a group out of Pittsburgh, I think, that did this study. And yep. they wanted all of the prescriptions to be in what they called the medical home. And that's what I understand to be the primary care physician. And so drug-drug interactions ostensibly are, are minimized by this strategy. And the amount of psychiatry resources that are needed to manage all these patients are reduced. Collaborative care models, I, I had an attending, Dr. Chaco, who said that he was involved in some of the original studies with collaborative care models. And the data on collaborative care models is, is old now, right? They, they seem to improve the care for mental health conditions. They reduce the cost for the patients that have mental health conditions that interfere with their, physio, their physical uh, illness. And um, this study by the University of Pittsburgh was the first step at looking at well, I'm not sure it's the first step, but it's one of the steps looking at collaborative care um, in the post-cardiovascular, uh, the post-bypass graft surgery setting. What were the outcomes that you saw with that, Cody? What, what were the outcomes that you saw reported? Yeah, so they, I honestly think it was hard to understand the um, results, but what they had said is that the, um, let's see. Basically, the group that had intervention that had the collaborative care done, they had a 50% or greater decline from their baseline of the, the Hamilton depression rating scale. And then they also had improvement in the mental health related quality of life going from those surveys. I think I also saw that they had an improvement in cost outcomes compared to the treatment as usual group. But I didn't see, and, and I didn't know if I missed this, I didn't see improvement in outcomes for uh, cardiovascular health. I did not see that at all. Okay. So, um, we've got somebody who here who plans on going into collaborative care. So we've talked about from showing up at the emergency room on some level, right? Uh, with acute chest pain, we've talked about the surgical aspect of this. We've talked about, uh, the psychiatrist involvement in, in this model. And that is perhaps to work in this, uh, collaborative care model. Um, now, Garrett, what, what does the primary care physician role look like in this? Is there anything that you'd add to what we've talked about? Well, I think it's just kind of that collaborativeness. Like, I feel like an important part begins even before the cardiothoracic surgery and after because a good primary care physician will have been able to screen and see these signs of depression beforehand that might have been missed before heading to surgery. And then afterwards, knowing that this is something that you might see that might not be caught or is and be ready to pick up that maintenance treatment. Because oftentimes these 
depression medications, they take a while to start having an effect and they can take a while to get to the right dosage and the right amount of treatment. So you have to be ready to take on that maintenance. Good. All right. Uh, Cody, I know you sent a, another uh, article, a couple other articles to me. I think that we've still captured the breadth of the articles that you sent to me, but maybe we haven't. Is there something that um, you'd like to bring up or talk about that we haven't addressed at this point? Really, you've touched on a lot of everything. Um, the only thing that I would add even more to is just that they they need to standardize basically to be able to make more randomized controlled trials such as that bypassing the blues, like there needs to be a, a more set um, tool to use or the timing of that tool. And also to use the cardiac rehab time, like that's a very set thing that's used for, for patients after cabbage surgery. And I was just thinking they could really utilize that with treating the depression too. Cody, one of the things I didn't fully understand, I think uh, the New England Journal of Medicine article that you sent me on what rehab looks like care after cabbage, and that was the Charlson article, which listed all of these things that are involved in cardiac rehab. It seemed to me that maybe the central component of the cardiac rehab is showing up at some location for physical activity. And then, then there are other people that are sort of around that that are involved in the medication management, the smoking cessation component, um, managing blood pressure, diabetes, but it, it felt like maybe that's what makes it stand out as, as cardiac rehab is that cardiovascular exercise piece. What, what, what am I missing in that? that? That really is to me what I've always thought of as cardiac rehab. It's the going in and like working with, a, with PT or physical therapy in some way. Basically that to me is the cardiac rehab, but I feel like it has evolved over the years. And it's just necessary to make sure that everywhere has that psychosocial aspect to it as well. The psychosocial in addition to the medical management of the various associated conditions, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Anything else that you would point out from the articles that we read that, that might be helpful to us to understand this overlapping set of conditions? Let's see. So really was back to the idea that once you do have a depressed post-cabbage patient, their rates of rehospitalization for CV causes just from arrhythmias or just the return of angina are much, much higher in those depressed patients compared to those not depressed. So it really is, that really is the key here. It doesn't really matter when you catch it. Once you do know there's depression, this can really affect patients. So depression does worsen patient, outcome, patient outcomes. And that's really the key key takeaway. Yeah, it seems like it's clear that we see that link. I'm not sure we found the solution to that yet or how we, we turn around the depression and see that change the outcomes completely yet, but it seems like we're on, on, a, on a track to do that. Definitely. Uh, let's go ahead and get uh, final I comment. A, oh, I have yeah. a question. Yeah. Um, so just kind of as somebody that wants to go into primary care, um, like I think you touched on this a little bit, but um, depression kind of post-op is more common with the cabbage surgery, but what about knowing kind of like the prevalence of depression post-op for other surgeries? Um, like you might know, Cody, of 
other like cardiothoracic surgeries, but what about like orthopedic surgeries and stuff like that? Is something is that something that a primary care doctor needs to look out for for all procedures? <laughs> I, I sense a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so I briefly talked with Haley, and she was like, "Yeah, this is post-op depression was like a thing. It wasn't just cardiothoracic, and so there is a place for it everywhere, especially in the OB world. Yeah, yep. they have their own." So one of the things that I thought was really fascinating is um, I worked with um, a tremendous researcher, Mark Kunick, Dr. Kunick in Houston. And one of the things that they focused on at the MIREC there was translational outcomes. So where can you have um, studies that point us in a direction of dramatically changing the outcomes in medicine? And one of the things that we talked about a fair amount was the overlap of depression with the 10 big conditions. So there are 10 illnesses that suck up most of the dollars in healthcare or suck up a disproportionate amount of dollars in healthcare. And I think at some point that might be an interesting topic. They include things like diabetes, they include things like asthma. And there does seem to be an increased amount of depression in some of these big 10. And so uh, both post-surgical and in some of uh, a certain list of illnesses, there's clearly greater depression. Um, but I, I think maybe my answer at this point based on the data we have is this. Depression is prevalent enough in the community with or without medical conditions and overlays that if you're screening for it um, and, and have a, a good ability to then say, okay, I've screened positive. Now, how do I verify the diagnosis looking at the criteria, SIGI caps? Then I think that gives you the chance of catching it every time you need to. Although I think your idea of maybe I need to be even a little more vigilant in this group and not check once a year with like a, like a PHQ, but check maybe more often. I think that's kind of where you're leaning towards. And I don't have a good answer for that, but that's a good question. If you decide to yeah. change your podcast plans tonight, let me know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like at the beginning, Cody made it sound like the cabbage surgery in particular was um, due to like kind of unknown mechanisms in the body made the patient more at risk for depression. Is that right? So, so I think originally when we looked at this podcast, I mentioned to Cody that I had seen a couple of patients who after uh, bypass surgery were really very confused. And it was, we thought maybe there was an embolic shower that had caused that. Um, there seems to be some association between time on the pump and post-operative recovery. Um, I didn't read a lot about that in the articles that Cody sent me. And, and I think as I read about this uh, elevation, some of the cytokines, IL-6 and 8 and TNF, it makes me wonder if some of the things that I saw in the past that I attributed to maybe being some sort of um, embolic shower of sorts might have simply been uh, a delirium associated with some of these changes. Right, so, so I think the original discussion about this was, was the acute events that might be associated with uh, bypass surgery. But really when Cody went into the literature, there's so much data on depression associated with cardiovascular disease pre and post cabbage that, that the podcast took a little bit different turn based on what I thought it might be. And Cody, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you knew the right direction the whole time. But, but this, this felt like a little bit of a shift and something that really clarified things that I didn't have a good sense of. Yeah, I, I actually was not too surprised, but just like with any study, there was the other study that actually found specifically that there was the new 
like new onset depression symptoms was higher after the cabbage surgery. So like there were things like that, that suggest there was more depression with cabbage, but it's it, so prevalent. It, it seemed Cody that maybe there was an immediate reduction in symptoms of depression generally or, or no change. And then that there might be this midline area, um, not at the day after, not at the one month mark, but maybe a couple of years out, but not six years out where there was a lot of ambiguity in the studies. Some studies seem to show increased rates and some studies seem to show decreased rates of depression. And to me, the signal is not entirely clear with that. I think, I think we just don't have a good sense. And, and one of the things I don't know is, again, separating out if you have people that are not revascularizing well, right, that mortality is still fairly high compared to both medical management and uh, percutaneous treatment. So um, I think the depression story has a lot more left in it. I think some of the specific details about the level of revascularization might be important and the level of care that's happening in the interim, because I'm not sure the studies that we looked at had, a, had the ability to convey to me what kind of care was involved in that in terms of depression. So there, there's a lot that is missing in this, but, but it looks like initially most people have less depression right after the surgery. And that maybe over time, the best longitudinal studies we have say that depression goes down. But there are plenty of studies that say, hey, a couple of years out, there might be more depression. And that's what I got out of the articles I read, Cody. Did you see something different than that? That was the main idea. Just there's still a lot of unknown, really. There's just not much connections made. I mean, just thinking about major depressive disorder in general, we don't know what exactly causes it. There's risk factors and there's similar risk factors from the cabbage surgery. So there's just a lot of overlap. It's a good way of thinking about it too. All right, uh, we are probably closing in on our limits of time. With our, we, we've uh, got Cody who is quarantined because of uh, exposure to the coronavirus. He's joined us through a Zoom meeting and we're recording with Zoom. And I think at the hour mark, we get kicked off and I don't know how close we are to that. Oh, no. So uh, let's go ahead and, and um, if you have a high yield thought or a last thought to close down the podcast, Garrett, we'll start with you. I think we covered the perspective of a PCP pretty well. Rebecca? Um, I think as far as shelf exam goes, just make sure that if someone presents with depressive symptoms that you um, roll out other medical illnesses first, including hypothyroidism, or is the most common one you'll probably see on a shelf exam. Excellent. Chris, by the way, it gets a lot harder as you go further around, right? Because inevitably they took the one you wanted to say, but Chris, go ahead. Um, no, yeah, I think it's important to just kind of keep an eye out for this in all patients, like you guys were saying across the board screening for depression. Yeah. I like that. Jake. Yeah, this is an interesting topic. From an emergency medicine perspective, I see a lot of patients with chest pain, with subsequent MIs, or, you know, that we send uh, to the lab to get their heart done. And we always have them follow up with their primary care physicians after, but in my mind, that's always been, you know, to follow up with your cardiovascular health and never depression. So it's good to kind of bring this back up. Considering that about 30% of these patients probably have depression, at least somewhere in that number, that's actually an interesting idea is to just say, hey, are you having depression? It's pretty common with people that are having this kind of symptoms. And if you thought about seeing somebody, might add uh, years to people's lives, hard to say. Absolutely. Hard to say that with uh, certainty. Cody, uh, last take home from you. 
Uh, I just want to give some quick high-yield stuff. There's some good pharmacotherapy from that bypassing the blues, such as tricyclic antidepressants. They're cardiotoxic. They're already not good for depression, so definitely don't give them to someone that just had heart surgery. They're not, they're, they are good for depression, but not good for people well, that have risk for arrhythmias after heart surgery, right? Correct. Stay, stay away from those in, in heart concerns is what I think you're saying. Yep. What else? The main idea is depression is prevalent. Screen for it, treat it, help the patients. Good. So find it, treat it, don't use TCAs on somebody that's had a cabbage. All right, guys, what a, what a good job. I really like the way you guys tackled a lot of different parts of this uh, from the different perspectives. This is something that I don't think we've done before where we've taken something that really crosses so many different domains of treatment and uh, specialties and looked at it from uh, you know, all these different angles. And I really like that. Great choice on topic, Cody. And on that note, everybody, team out. Team out. Team out. Team out.